0: Good morning, everyone. It's Wednesday and it's June, which means we're going to be doing Bible study. I am so excited to be back with you all. This is going to be great. Um, I didn't think I would be back teaching Bible study in this same room again, but here we are. Um, For those of you who have been with me for the last year or two or three or four, then you know that I love this. Um, For those of you who are joining us for the first time, No, you are very welcome here. Um, I'm excited that now we're able to stream live both to Facebook and to YouTube. I know that many of the people who come to Bible study in person at St. Michael are not members of Facebook. And so we're hoping that this YouTube video is able to engage anyone who doesn't have Facebook. Um, Both platforms work very similarly. There is a comment field with both videos. And so whether you're on Facebook or you're on YouTube, know that we want you to engage with this. We wanna know what you think. We want to have your questions as we go through this Bible study. Um, We're here together for about an hour. And so do ask your questions. And even more importantly, because we are still socially distanced from one another, let us know you're here. Make a comment in the comment field, either down below or to the side, and let us know that you are here, where you're from, um, if this is your first time joining us, or if if you've been here with us for years. Um, So you should know too that Monica Rosser, um, who helps me at St. Michael, is going to be moderating these comment fields. And so Monica is going to share her information in these comment fields. Feel free to make a comment or ask a question in those fields, but If you're a little shy, you don't really want to ask your question directly or publicly, then Monica is also going to share her email address. You can send her an email live this morning, and then she's going to ping me whenever there are questions as we go through this study. So I'm very excited to be here with you. We're going to open with a prayer, and then we're going to kick it off. So the Lord be with you. Let us pray. Gracious God, we give you thanks for bringing us together on this Wednesday morning. We ask that you help us to put down stress and worry and anxiety. Help us to empty ourselves of all those things that weigh on us, that we are open to having your spirit fill us up, open to having you touch our hearts and minds to inspire us to do that which you have called us to do, to be your people, your hands and feet in this world. May we be blessed in this study. May we be challenged in this study. May we change the way we live because we are digging down deep in the story of your salvation. Lord, we also remember this morning, all those who are sick, all those who are near the end of their lives, all those who are hurt, all those who are worried or fearful. Lord, we know that our world is broken and there is so much uncertainty swirling around us, but we also know that you can turn all things to the good. We are faithful in that truth. And I pray that this month, as we study one of your most wonderful words, that we will in two be inspired. All this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, everybody. So Philippians. We are going to be studying Philippians this month. So there are four Wednesdays in June. There are four chapters in Philippians. So you do the math. One chapter a week. Um, For those of you who are unfamiliar with Philippians, we're going to do a little bit of context. If you know me, you know I like context. I want to know who wrote this, when it was written, where it was written, why it was written, all of that good stuff. And so we're going to begin today's study on chapter one with some good context. All right, so I hope you have your Bibles. Grab your Bibles and turn to Philippians. Do not start flipping from the front of the Bible. Don't do that. You will waste your time. Philippians is near the very back. This is an epistle. You know, if you go to church regularly, and especially in a liturgical tradition like the Episcopal Church, you know that we typically hear from multiple different sections of the Bible in our worship services, typically from the Old Testament, from the New Testament, an epistle, and then from a gospel. And so epistles are quite literally letters. That is what epistle means. And these letters were written by multiple apostles of Jesus in the first century. Most of the letters were written, well, that's not entirely true. The largest number of letters written by a single person were written by Paul. It used to be that we thought over a dozen of these letters were written by Paul himself. Now we feel like through linguistic studies, scholars have really determined that about half of those letters were actually written by Paul himself. And the other half were likely written by Paul's students, people who traveled with Paul, other missionaries with Paul, and they used Paul's name because Well, you know, you want to get attention, you've got to name drop. And back in the first century Christian world, name dropping pretty much meant use Paul. And so about half of those letters that 100 years ago we thought were all written by Paul, we believe now are genuinely written by Paul's hand. And Philippians is one of them. One of those letters that Paul wrote to these people that he loved. So we're going to start with a just simple question. uh, Who is Paul? And a reminder, make your comments down below. If you have a question, Paul is probably not someone that is unfamiliar to us. And so if you've got a question about Paul in general, then ask it now because we're doing a little bit of bio context around this letter. So Paul was born in the first century. He was born with the name Saul, but we know him as Paul. He His name kind of flipped when he met Christ on the road. And in, in essence, Saul and Paul are just two different versions, um, both Hebrew and Greek, the same name. Um, we just, it's easier for us to refer to him as Paul. So I'm just gonna go with Paul from the start, even though we know that he was not known by Paul until his conversion. So Paul was born in an area named Tarsus. And Tarsus is not in Israel, but Paul is Jewish. Paul was born to a Jewish family, and a wealthy Jewish family, and a Jewish family who were Roman citizens. That's very important. Outside of Israel, Palestine, Judea, you know, that kind of area, there were pockets of Jewish communities, and some of them did have Roman citizens. And there's a question about how this may have happened. Um, I would say conventional wisdom, most people believe— it was probably something to do with Paul's parents or grandparents, someone in the past, worked for a wealthy Roman citizen, and then upon that Roman's death, Paul's ancestors were granted citizenship. It was common, maybe not most common, but it was normal that in someone's estate at the time, they might give their servants, especially some of their kind of best household servants, their freedom, their citizenship upon their death—that was kind of, you know, rather than giving money or land, they might give citizenship. And to be fair, in the Roman world, citizenship was probably more valuable than money or or land. So Paul has inherited that citizenship because his parents were citizens, and that gives him some real interesting benefits. Paul is a pretty unique Jewish leader because he is not only a Roman citizen, but he was born outside of Judea, and he was almost certainly educated by some of the best Roman teachers around. In addition to being educated generally on the world, which would have included all the classic philosophers and languages and all of that stuff, Paul would have also gone on to study with some of the best Jewish legal minds. And one of those Jewish rabbis is Gamaliel. Gamaliel in history, kind of in Jewish history, is considered one of the best rabbis, period. And Paul was one of his students. And so all of this is to say, Paul was extremely well-educated. And this is different than a lot of the other followers of Jesus in the first century. If we think back to the apostles, those who followed Jesus while he was still alive, Most of them were not well educated. In fact, many of them, most of them probably had no formal education. So they may have been good speaking off the cuff, but writing? Nah, they wouldn't have been very good at that. And so even though people like St. Peter were able to speak in a very convincing way, Paul takes the ministry to the next level. Paul is familiar with the Roman world, that entire Mediterranean world. Paul is almost certainly multilingual and Paul is able to construct an argument very well. Remember that Jewish rabbis, especially back 2000 years ago, would have effectively been canon lawyers. They were legal minds who were able to parse out the law and really make it make sense to people. And so Paul was not just theologian, not just preacher, teacher, like we might think of as clergy now. Paul was, to be fair, a a religious lawyer. And so Paul's capacity to write is really high. And that's what makes his mission work so very effective, which brings us to his epistles. Paul was a church planter. And Paul traveled physically all over the Mediterranean, primarily north of Israel, kind of in that Lebanon, Syria area, then over into Turkey and also into Greece. Philippi is in Greece. Philippi is a city in northern Greece, and that city is really the first place in Europe, if we, what we think of Europe, that hears the good news of Jesus. And so Philippi has a special place in Paul's heart, and we're going to see just how much Paul loves the Philippian people in this letter. So these letters were written to the communities that Paul helped to create. As Paul traveled around to these different cities, Paul started churches, but he didn't just kind of put up a building and say, hey, come on in. Instead, what Paul did is he met people who lived in those communities He created these partnerships with the people in those communities and then empowered those people, those natives, those local guys and gals to really maintain the church in his absence. Paul didn't stay anywhere for long. And when he moved on, he left those people in his stead. And when you start a church, when you share faith, when you really are vulnerable and honest, you really fall in love with people. And Paul loved these Philippians very deeply. And letters were written not only to Philippi, but to churches in many other places like in Ephesus, Ephesians, or in Corinth, Corinthians. Paul wrote these letters not only to stay in contact with the community, but often to answer questions. Imagine Paul drops into town, makes some friends, begins to pray, creates a church community, and then he leaves. Well, Everything's kind of easy at the beginning, but as things happen as life happens, people can begin to wonder, how are we supposed to really do this Christian discipleship thing? And so then they would write to their friend Paul. And they would say, "Paul, what about X?" And then Paul would consider this and write them a letter back and give them a faithful answer. Here's this is a very important idea for us to understand about Paul's writings because many times leaders today take Paul's writings as being ubiquitous, omniscient, that when Paul says a certain thing about a certain idea, then that's what Paul meant for all Christians for all time. That's not really Paul. The Paul that we see in the letters is a guy who loves communities who they are, understands that each community is a little different, made up of different kinds of people in a different area, struggling with different issues. And when Paul writes these letters, he is writing much more as a pastor than he is writing as some kind of uh, theologian who is making a ubiquitous determination on a certain idea. So it's very easy for us to pull one little phrase from Paul's letters and say, this is what all Christians should believe all the time. And I want us to be invited into a new way of thinking of Paul that is a faithful pastor, loving people, who is answering as faithfully as possible to a nuance of life within a certain community in a certain place. I do not believe that Paul meant for every single detail of every one of his letters to be absolutely determinative for all time. Because you see, Paul loved Jesus. Paul followed Jesus. And we will see in Philippians, perhaps more than any other letter, that Paul lands in a very particular place about what it means to be Christian. And that is, in general, that everything we do should be done out of love and that everything we do should be done for god's glory for god's kingdom here on earth not for us and in philippians we see that kind of living with love made explicit all right so that's enough context for paul reminder that if you've got some questions go ahead and ask them in the comment field and i'll try to get to them live during this study all right. So let's actually get into Philippians. So open up to Philippians and we're going to see Paul's opening prayer. So Paul tends to start all of his letters with a prayer. And that prayer is really, you know, it can also it can be just a nice prayer, but often Paul being a very good lawyer almost has an opening statement right? He's kind of making an opening argument here where he is saying the rest of the letter is going to have to do with this stuff. And so we're going to pray about this particular stuff so that when you get into the letter, you've almost already put yourself in the right frame of mind in order to hear what Paul has to say most properly. So look at Philippians chapter one. We're going to start with verse three, which is after the salutation. Paul writes, I thank my God every time I remember you, constantly praying with joy in every one of my prayers for all of you because of your sharing in the gospel from the first day until now. I am confident of this, that the one who began a good work among you will bring it to completion by the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to think this way about all of you because you hold me in your heart, for all of you share in God's grace with me, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I long for all of you with the compassion of Jesus Christ. And this is my prayer, that your love may overflow more and more with knowledge and full insight to help you to determine what is best, so that in the day of Christ you may be pure and blameless, having produced the harvest of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ for the glory and praise of God. All right, we're gonna stop there. This is really Paul's opening prayer. This is him setting the table for what the letter will really be about. So as you noticed, Paul is writing from prison. And so that may have been a surprise for some of you. Paul is in prison and it's probably likely he's in prison in Ephesus. We don't know for sure, um, but that makes most sense because he references having come to see them again. Um, And we know based on Paul's missionary journeys that he has made this loop a couple times. And so it's very likely that he's in Ephesus and he's in prison. So a quick note about prison in the Roman empire. Prison is not as we might think prison is. Prison is not where you're just totally isolated and separated from everybody. Prison is almost a bit more, um, I wanna say sophisticated, almost kind of dignified in a sense. Prison sort of like, you got to stay here, but we're not whipping you, beating you, that sort of stuff, especially Roman citizen. The caveat here is that, remember, Paul's a Roman. So in prison, you have to get support from your friends. And we know from this letter later on that the Philippians have been sending some support to Paul. And that support could be in the way of money for people who live right there near the prison, perhaps even food or clothing, things that will help him have a better quality of life while he is being held in prison. Um, and so although although we use the word prison, think of it almost like a, a sort of a dumpy house arrest, you know, sort of thing. Um, so the Philippians have been supporting him. And so part of this letter is kind of a thank you for your support, um, but he obviously goes larger than that. Um, and we see right here in the beginning that Paul loves the Philippians. Paul loves the Philippians perhaps more than any other single community. Um, When we look at the letters in general, Paul's love for the Philippians is so very apparent in a way that's not perhaps as strong with other communities. In fact, other communities, I mean, at some point, maybe we'll study Corinthians, other communities really disappoint Paul and frustrate and annoy Paul. Philippians seem to have this way about them that Paul just connects so deeply with them. So Paul's affection for the Philippians is apparent here. um, And Paul talks very specifically about a partnership with the Philippians. We look at verse seven, we see, all of you share in God's grace with me. Paul understands that the work that he is doing is not work that he does on his own, that he goes into these communities like in Philippi, And he really partners with the people. As I said, he gets to know the people, he falls in love with those people, that he empowers those people to maintain that particular community in his absence. And the Philippian church has really done this beautifully. He understands and re-acknowledges the partnership that he has with them. This word is often translated as fellowship, and fellowship is something that churches tend to use a lot that comes from Paul. Paul uses that word very regularly, but I kind of think fellowship has been tweaked a bit um, and made almost mostly social. Like fellowship is this idea that we're we're friendly with each other, that we know one another, we celebrate with one another, we share time with one another, and all of that is very good. But I think that in our modern context, the idea of partnership really gets at the heart of what Paul says right here, because he's not looking for a good time. Like it's not really about having fun, although that could be a component. Paul really understands the work that he's doing as a partnership in expanding God's kingdom on earth. And he really hits that very clearly here at the beginning of the letter to the Philippians. So I've got a couple questions here. Let me read them real fast. Um, oh, that's interesting. So David asks, um, in the beginning of this letter, Paul addresses bishop and deacons and how did, early, did the early church decide on governance and structure? So that's, that's a very, that's a moving target. Um, the idea of bishops, priests, deacons, that kind of stuff. Um, remember that the earliest followers of Jesus were primarily Jews and Jews did have a sense of hierarchy around kind of local authority, regional authority, total authority, that kind of stuff. And so in some ways you get a bit of that, that kind of is copied and pasted on top of the early church, the early Christian community. Um, But remember that the church is also influenced by the world, right? In Acts, we see that the Jerusalem council makes a big critical decision, which is that anyone can follow Jesus. You don't have to be Jewish to follow Jesus. And so once that ball gets rolling, we have a lot of people who have no idea what it means to be Jewish, but who respond to the gospel of Christ. So then their leadership models begin to be mixed and interwoven with some of the earliest discipleship models. And ultimately in these letters, bishops, deacons, that sort of stuff, it effectively, you can think of it as kind of teachers and students in a way um, that is not that is a messy <laughs> um, way to say this ah uh, so uh, one one way to dis- differentiate between apostles and disciples is that effectively apostles are teachers disciples are students and in many ways in the early church one of the distinctions between say bishops and deacons is that bishops are, kind of the teachers. You know, they were students and now they have become the teachers. And I think that we cannot put our formal hierarchy on top of those words. It's just too early in the creation of the church. Deacons are really more like what you would see in say a Baptist congregation where deacons are just really good members who have shown a particular charism to doing this Christian discipleship well and taking on the responsibility of raising more people up in that discipleship. Sorry, David, that's not perhaps super satisfying. Um, And so Liz asks, why did he love them so much? So there's a section in Acts, uh, I actually pulled it out and I decided not to read it, but if you look at the 16th chapter of Acts, I won't read it right now, um, but if you go back to Acts 16, verse 11, there's a little section where it shows that Paul went to Philippi and met a woman named Lydia. And Lydia became really the anchor of the church. And I think when you ask the question, you know, why did Paul love them so much? It's twofold. One, I think he fell in love with them in person the very first time he was there. These were passionate people who helped build a church. They were committed, they were generous, and all that good stuff. But I think. Moving forward, as the community developed, the Philippian community really did the best. I mean, I hate to put it that way cuz I don't think that it's super judgy, but in the sense of what Paul believed the church on earth should be, I think that the way that he wrote these letters, him it may not be a stretch to say that Paul thought the Philippians may have been closest. Um, And of course, everyone's imperfect, but the Philippians seemed to have done this with such intense faithfulness and thoughtfulness. And we're going to see about how the thoughtfulness comes in to play here um, that I think his love for them just deepened over time, like love for anyone who really kind of shares your values does over time. Um, And finally, why is Timothy referenced? So Timothy is there in prison with Paul. And so effectively, Timothy has is kind of Paul's assistant. And eh, that's a little strong. Um, but, you know, Paul's kind of the big name and Timothy is a missionary that's come alongside Paul and is taking the journey with him. And so this is one of the reasons why we think Paul is likely imprisoned in Ephesus because he references Timothy. Timothy's there with him in prison. Timothy was with him when he was imprisoned in Ephesus on one of his missionary journeys. So it kind of makes sense. He kind of put those two together. So Timothy is effectively Paul's helper in one of his missionary journeys. And so when Paul gets arrested, so does Timothy. And they're sitting in prison and they're writing to these communities. Um, so there you go. All right, let's press on. So Paul loves these people. It's great. In the beginning of this let- of this letter with this prayer, Paul prays very specifically for three things. And I think it's important for us to note these three things that Paul prays for because they will get fleshed out in the rest of the letter. So first, look at chapter, I'm sorry, verse nine. So this is one nine. Paul says, this is my prayer, that your love may overflow more and more with knowledge and full insight. All right, knowledge and insight. Love with knowledge and insight. This is very interesting because I think for most of us, When we talk about love, and Paul talks about love a lot, and we talk about the love of Christ, we often think that this love, I think because of our English language, love kind of bleeds into emotion. And for Paul, love does not equal emotional. Love is something much bigger than emotion. Emotion's a component, but love is also wise. There is wisdom and knowledge and learning and discernment in love. Yes, there's emotion, right? Feeling love, showing love in an emotional sense, no problem. But that's only a portion of the fullness of love that Paul understands in Christ. And so for Paul, he wants their love to overflow with knowledge and insight. This is a very important distinction that we should make about Paul's understanding of love. Verse 10, Paul says, so overflow more and more with knowledge and insight to help you determine what is best so that in the day of Christ, you may be pure and blameless. So the second part of Paul's prayer is to help them determine what is best. All right, Paul is praying for wise love for good moral discernment. Paul really wants the Philippians to work hard at this. Paul understands that wise moral discernment is not easy. Our world is complicated. The Philippians lived in a very complicated, confusing, often very hurtful world. And he understands that their challenge could mean that they make love cheap and easy, or that they make love something legal. Paul does not want that. Paul wants these Philippians to really push themselves to work on what love really means, how they are to love and how they are to act in love. That's very important because the actions matter. For Paul, it is critical that people not only feel God's love and respond to God with love but that they act in love and in doing so they act like Christ right for Paul most of what he's looking for is that you build your identity your life your community around being like Christ and so we love like Christ and if we have read our gospels we know that Jesus's love is very complex And Jesus's love is not the kind of gushy, sappy love that we often associate with that word. No, Jesus's love could be firm. Jesus's love could be a little difficult. Jesus's love could be judgy because Jesus's love went beyond feeling. Jesus's love went to something much bigger. Jesus's love, according to Paul, went to something righteous. So let's jump on to verse 11. So the third thing that Paul prays for is that through their wise discernment and loving spirit, they will have, verse 11, produced the harvest of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ for the glory and praise of God. One of Paul's favorite buzzwords is righteousness. Righteousness is a word that people like to pull out of Paul. And righteousness can be a little... A little problematic because righteousness in a sense kind of sounds judgy and sounds self-righteous and so instead of righteousness I think it may be more helpful in the same way that I like to take fellowship and actually make it partnership. I think that instead of righteousness let's think of this word properly translated into English as right living. It kind of takes a little bit of the of the sting and the sharpness off of the word, if we think about right living, what we're really talking about is how we choose to act in the world because of Christ. Because when we are faithful people and we receive God's love and we respond in love, we're making choices how to act. And those choices are meant to reflect the love that we've already received from God through Christ. Right living, how people live is very important to Paul. And Paul understands right living as being the kind of living that does not point to us, but instead points to God. We become a conduit, a window in a sense, that helps people see God more and more clearly because of us. And this becomes a very important nuance to what Paul says to do in this letter. Because ultimately, whatever the Philippians do, They need to do so not for their own gain, but they need to do for God's kingdom. All right. So that is the second part of today's lesson. We began with who is Paul. We looked at Paul's opening prayer. And the third part of the lesson is going to be looking at Paul's predicament. That's going to be the second half of chapter one. I've got one other question. Um... From Patricia writes, will Paul be expressing more joy in this letter compared to other letters that Paul actually wrote? Um, That's a very good question. You know, I love the word joy. I think joy is so delicious because joy has a beautiful complexity to it. Um, You know, we often talk about people being happy. You know, I think that many of us say we want those people we love to be happy. Friends, children, spouses, family, whomever. Um, that all we want is for them to be happy. And I think happy is pretty cheap and shallow. I think happy is a, an accident. It's a result of a life well-lived, but should not ultimately be the point of life. And I think that Paul kind of gets at this idea um, when Paul talks about joy. And yes, he will talk about joy in this letter to the Philippians. Um, Paul finds joy In his circumstance, we're going to see in the second half of chapter one that Paul is kind of like an eternal optimist. I mean, Paul sees that anything that happens in the world can be turned into good with God, that God's commitment to us, God's fidelity to us, is to turn anything bad into good, not to prevent the bad from happening. Paul is very clear on this. And we're going to see in the second part of chapter one that. Paul is in prison, all right? It would be easy for Paul to say, excuse me, God, I have been doing all of these good things. I have been planting churches. I have been spreading the gospel. I've been doing all this good work. Why am I in prison? Instead, Paul will understand that his imprisonment, even something as awful as being in prison, even death itself, can be used for God's glory, that God will use that kind of pain for glory. That makes Paul a very particular kind of pastor and preacher and teacher. Paul is not concerned with his own benefit. Paul is not concerned with his own comfort and his own achievement. Paul is only concerned about spreading God's kingdom. That is the kind of Paul you don't hear a lot of preachers appealing to. They tend to like to use Paul to talk about faithfulness equaling power and strength and security and success and achievement, and Paul, the real Paul, would totally disagree. All right, so let's look at this Paul's predicament, the second half, effectively, of chapter one. So Paul has two problems, (laughs) and he lays those problems out um, in this middle section. So let's look at verse 12. Paul writes, I want you to know, beloved, that what has happened to me has actually helped to spread the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to everyone else that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers and sisters, having been made confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, dare to speak the word with greater boldness and without fear. So Paul's first problem is that he's in prison. And I imagine that Philippians would not be, I mean, would be blameless if they kind of got a letter and said, oh my God, Paul's in prison. What went wrong? And Paul wants to start off very plainly to say, nothing is wrong that even being in prison can be used to God's glory. For Paul, as a church planter, being in prison means he can't go do what he's supposed to do, right? Paul wants to get out there and plant churches. When he is literally physically locked down and cannot move, he can't get out there and plant churches. He can't do what his charism is meant to do. And as I noted just a few minutes ago, Paul could be super frustrated about that, could understand that as has God wronging him and why God, why me? Why would you do this? I am so faithful. No, that is not what Paul does. Paul takes the moment in prison to say, listen, God's got this, right? God's got me, God's got us, and it is my job to be faithful in the storm. My job sitting in prison is to do whatever I can to help continue to do the work of God's kingdom. And so Paul's writing letters, yes, but Paul's also using those letters to help these new Christians interpret bad in the world. Right? One of our favorite, a favorite is not the right word, um, one of the most common struggles that Christians have is the question, why do bad things happen to good people? Right? We often, and it's so human, and we should not blame ourselves for this, that when bad things happen, not if, when, when bad things happen our humanity calls us into the question of why me? Why did this happen? What did I do to cause this bad thing? Was I not faithful enough? Or maybe we flip it and we say, why God? God, why would you let this happen? Why are you not faithful to me? That's not what happens. The world is painful. The world is hard. The world is scary. The world is confusing. Listen, we know, right? I mean, just think about the last few months, especially the last week. This world is not easy. And the world's going to throw all kinds of junk at us. And Paul says, no matter what this world throws at you, God's got it. This world is broken. And we, unfortunately, will feel the collateral damage of that brokenness. But God can work all things out for the good paul is certain and you know i kind of feel like if it's good enough for paul it's good enough for me so paul says in this moment that the whole imperial guard knows that his imprisonment is because of christ so how paul interprets this is now they know about jesus they are wondering why would this guy do all of these things just to land himself in prison is it worth it? And what Paul is excited about, I mean, kind of, I think excited is probably the right word, is that now there are people, guards, working for the Romans who are asking that exact question. And some of them, maybe not most, but at least some, will ask that question sincerely enough to where they might go and try and find out. And when they go to find out more, they will actually become disciples of Jesus. And so Paul understands that everybody knows, everybody knows now that it's all about Jesus. And now they might be interested enough to find out more about this Jesus. So Paul is the eternal optimist, says that I am doing this and people are learning about Jesus because of it. So you should too. Paul, in essence, ends this first, problem by saying that the Philippians should dare to speak the word with greater boldness and without fear. Paul knows that as their founder, as perhaps their leader, his imprisonment could scare them, right? Imprisonment might make them fear the good work that they're doing. And Paul says, no, do not let my imprisonment Back down your commitment to the gospel. In fact, if anything, go do more. Go without fear, because no matter what happens to you, God will work out the good. Paul understands that God's doing this good work, and that he and the Philippians and us are part of that good work too. Now let's look at the second problem second problem Paul unpacks in verse 15. Let's look at it together. Some proclaim Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. These proclaim Christ out of love, knowing that I have been put here for the defense of the gospel. The others proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but intending to increase my suffering in my imprisonment. What does it matter? Just this. That Christ is proclaimed in every way, whether out of false motives or true. And in that, I rejoice. This is a very interesting comment. So Paul says, "Eh, I'm in prison, problem number one. Problem number two, there are people out there who are false prophets. There are people out there who are spreading false news about Jesus. Paul could get really annoyed about those false prophets, but similarly, to the whole imperial guard learning about Jesus, Paul says, you know, God's in charge here. And if people are hearing about Christ from selfish, self-centered, self-serving people, at least they're hearing about Christ. And at, at some point, we trust that the Spirit is at work in the world trying to turn things Toward God, trying to make what is imperfect more perfect, what is broken healed. This is a very interesting kind of moment, I think, especially for us right now, because I think that many of us are confused about what Christians should be doing. And Paul says, hey, listen, Paul says a complex word here, and we need to admit and own that Paul's opinion of how to do right living how to act rightly is complex on the one hand paul says hey anyone talking about jesus is okay because at least they're talking about jesus but on the other hand paul says that there's a better way to do this that when people talk about jesus for their own gain when people are self-centered about their talk of jesus and they're not those windows that point beyond themselves to god then they are false. They are doing this Jesus talk. They are talking and using Jesus in vain for their own gain. Those people are wrong. But God can still take that wrong and turn it into something right. When people of good faith, people who act rightly, take the opportunity to use the interest of Christ As a means of helping to lead people closer and closer to the truth of Christ. And Paul says, knowing how to make that path connect those dots is challenging. It takes love. And remember, love is something very big and complex. Love is not just emotion, love is not just feeling. Love is wisdom, love is discernment, love is strength, love is complex. And when we use that love rightly, to act rightly and justly, then we can take anything that the world throws at us, even those false prophets and those self-centered people, and we can turn that into something true and real in helping to build up God's kingdom. That insincerity is not really a problem for Paul. Paul sees any talk of Jesus as an opportunity. And I think that's very interesting for us Because how could we take any opportunity when someone's talking about Jesus and help to kind of turn that conversation in a way that points to the real, deep, true, complicated love of Christ? Now, to end this first chapter study, we're going to jump down to verse 27. So a quick reminder here that if you've got some questions or some thoughts, comments, make sure you throw them in because I'd love to be able to respond to them in the last few minutes of the class. We ended at 1130, so we've got just over 10 minutes. Um, and I'd love to be able to answer something specific um, that you all have. And let's just be honest, all right? The world is like crazy right now. And so all of us in some way are feeling the stress and the fear and the anxiety of what's going on in the world. Some of us more than others, but we've all feeling it in some way. So don't be afraid to make a comment, ask a question, seek a little guidance, because we're all in this together. And this is an opportunity for us to really kind of wrestle and tweak and mold and all of that good stuff together, because it's in the community that we discern that right kind of living. So Monica's here managing. So ask your questions, make your comments. And as I noted before, if you'd like to do so anonymously, Monica has her email address in the comment thread And feel free to email her directly, and that way the comment will remain anonymous. All right, jump down to verse 27. Verse 27, Paul really implores the Philippians to live a life worthy of the gospel. Let's read these few verses together. Paul says, live your life in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ So that whether I come and see you or am absent and hear about you, I will know that you are standing firm in one spirit, striving side by side with one mind for the faith of the gospel and are in no way intimidated by your opponents. For them, this is evidence of their destruction, but of your salvation. And this is God's doing. This is super important. Paul says right here, you got to live in the manner of the gospel of Christ. It's not good enough to say you believe it. It's not good enough to say a prayer and have some fairy dust sprinkled on you. We talk occasionally, and you, many of you have heard me say that, you know, baptism is a moment when we commit to a journey. We are not magicians saying magic words, and Jesus is not saving us some kind of incantation when we say certain words in the right order. That's not it. Baptism is the moment when we commit love back to God. God loves us first, period. God loves us first, and when we really own that love and we really know it's true, then we make the commitment to spending the rest of our lives responding to that love, sharing the love that we have received and bringing other people into that love as well. Baptism, that moment when we make the commitment, is the starting place. We're not done. It's not just that. That is the place when we begin. And then the journey gets real after that moment. The commitment we make is meant to guide everything else that we do in our lives. Paul says right here, Live a life worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now, in a sense, this is where the rubber hits the road, right? Paul knows that there are powers in the world that seek to destroy the gospel. Paul knows that there is evil in the world. Paul also knows that God will win. Paul's faithfulness in the redemptive work of Christ is that in the end, God wins. Christ's love wins. But Paul also knows that he may not see it. I might venture a guess to say that Paul doesn't think that he will see it. Paul understands that his role here in this kingdom work is temporary, that he is a person on this journey helping to bring people closer and closer to God but he's probably not gonna see its fulfillment. We are probably not gonna see its fulfillment. That's not the point because this has never been about us individually. This has been about us as a community. We strive in our lifetimes to live lives worthy of the gospel, to live lives worthy of Jesus having died for us. And in doing so, We help to move the needle of the kingdom closer and closer toward its fulfillment. It doesn't mean that it moves in a single direction. We can take two steps forward and one step back. I might say that we're kind of in a one step back moment right now, but that does not mean that we should lose hope. Paul knows that we could be hurt for choosing to follow Jesus. Paul knows that we could even be killed for choosing to follow Jesus. But Paul also knows what Jesus taught, that the world can kill the body, but the world cannot kill the soul. Paul's soul is saved. Paul knows that his commitment means that he is doing God's good work. And we believe that when we discern love in that complicated, messy form that Jesus shows us, that we will also be doing work worthy of the gospel, that the love that we show to one another is work that will be worthy of the gospel. Paul knows that the Philippians have some big choices ahead. And I would imagine Paul understands that as this Christian movement grows, that Rome will begin to feel more and more threatened. And as Rome feels threatened, Rome will start to fight back. Christianity is not gonna make people in power happy because Christianity is not about being powerful. Christianity is about pouring out any of the power and the strength and the achievement we think we need in this world and committing to giving everything over to the gospel. When people commit to something bigger than power and authority in this world, they become suspect. And those who wish for power and authority in this world will try to silence that voice because that kind of hopefulness is the inspiration that can bring down worldly power. Paul knows. And whether Paul knows that he will ultimately be killed for this, I can't say. But Paul certainly suspects that that's a potential end of his life. And yet, Paul says, be courageous, be strong. Do not be intimidated by your opponents. Because any intimidation they show you is evidence of their destruction. But it's evidence of your salvation. Paul is clear that all of that will be God's doing. So we have a few minutes here. We've got a few extra questions. Um, Yep, Liz says, um, it just, it feels like Paul's giving a pep talk to his followers. Absolutely. Paul is 100% giving a pep talk. Paul's giving a complicated theological pep talk, but you can absolutely understand Philippians as one big, great pep talk. You know, a lot of my friends um, really think Philippians is their favorite. I mean, this is, it's a small letter. It does not take much time at all to read. And although you can read it through quickly, if you spend a little bit more time kind of unpacking its nuance, Philippians does communicate perhaps most succinctly, most clearly, the hopefulness of living in this world as a Christian disciple. It's beautiful. There are many moments in Philippians that Christians have pulled out in order to help guide their lives, give them strength, give them hope for the future. In fact, verse uh, chapter four, verse 13 is one of the most famous ones. And I love it because my birthday is April 13th. So it's easy for me to remember, in, remember Philippians 4.13. Go look at it yourselves. We'll get there in a few weeks. Madeline asks um, a question about false prophets. Um, I know the Bible has much to say about false prophets as well as about righteous anger. Will you speak more about how to identify them and what is the best way to deal with them? Man, Madeline, I can see. So I love Madeline. Madeline will often just kind of give me the eye while I'm teaching. And then I'll see her hand go up slowly and I'll know, uh, here comes the hard question. Um, So I can hear Madeline's voice. What about false prophets? Okay, so... uh, I knew someone was gonna catch me on this. Um, This is a complicated answer right now. (sighs) This is how I'm gonna answer. And I've already said this once in the study, but to be clear, I don't believe any of us know just exactly right that we can point to someone as a false prophet. And I say that out of the strictest humility of the gospel. However, I also believe that Paul makes it very clear that false prophets use the gospel for their own gain. I think if Paul were to answer this question very succinctly, he would likely say, when someone uses Jesus, uses the gospel to help meet their own security, to help strengthen their own worldly status or position, they are a false prophet. We are not meant to use the gospel for our own gain. That's just not it. And I am pretty certain that that's right. Um, you really can't read the Bible in any reasonable way and see that Jesus's message and work and call to us is meant to put us ahead. That's just not what we see. Jesus's gospel, Jesus's life, his death, his resurrection is meant to call us into something that has nothing to do with this world. Jesus is called, Jesus has called us into a way of living that sees beyond what is in front of our face, sees beyond what we see right now in this world, sees a hopefulness in the pain, sees a future, even in death itself, that nothing that this world does can separate us from the love of God. That does not mean that people don't matter. That means people matter desperately, that people matter Jesus tells us to love our neighbor, and loving our neighbor means that we've got to love every person. And that does mean the people who hurt us. We cannot, no matter how hard we twist or tweak the gospel, get away from the fact that Jesus allowed himself to die for the work that he did. Jesus allowed himself to lose his life because he loved his neighbors that much. Friends, it's hard to hear, but Jesus calls us into that kind of discipleship and I would hope that none of us would have to lose our lives for the gospel. But in the end, if that's our call, then what we see on this world is not all there is. Jesus gave us a model of what true love looks like and true love is sacrificial True love is deep. True love is for good. True love even means we give up everything for the good of our neighbor. When someone acts differently than that, I think we need to be mindful that their leadership is not as close to Christ as it could be. And on that note... We will be doing this again next week. This is a four-week study. And if you miss the live videos, um, or if you want to share this with friends, you can go to the website that you see there at stmichael.org slash RBS. That's Rector's Bible Study. If you go to stmichael.org slash RBS, you'll see all of our archived studies. And that's not just Philippians, even though it will be there. That can be what we've done in Genesis and what we did in Luke and Acts years ago. Um, I've had many people tell me that, um, you know, being that this is the summer and they're still social distanced and they're done watching Netflix, um, they need something else to do. And so they've actually gone back and they've re-listened to these Bible studies. And that has really been kind of a life-giving, life-affirming experience. And I will say I am grateful for that. Um, I wish I could see all your faces right now, um, but know that you are in my prayers and I hope that I am in yours and I wish you all a wonderful day. God bless you. And I will see you back here for chapter two next week.